Welcome back to Left Anchor. I'm Alexi the Greek. And I'm Ryan Cooper. We're welcoming to the, the podcast today uh, Mr. Chris Harris, who is an organizer um, and political activist in Austin, Texas. And I'm here to talk about some kind of homeless policy and police stuff. Um, and and he'll, he'll, he'll tell us more about it, I'm sure. Don't want to step on his toes here. Um, but yeah, welcome to the show, Chris. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. And Chris is director of Texas Appleseed, the nonprofit, your, your current position right now? That is my position, though. I'm, I'm here today in my personal capacity. Got it. Got it. Okay, just, just checking. All right. All, all kinds of gotcha. ways in which you're fighting the good fight there in Austin. All right. Trying, trying. Yeah, so to get us started here, Chris, um, if you could tell us, uh, well, maybe just how you kind of got involved with, um, you know, activism around this area in the first place, you know, g- give us a little, you know, capsule biography, so to speak. Yeah, sure. Well, I mean, I, I actually, you know, I, I went out to D.C. right after school and uh, <laughs> tried to do the politics thing. Uh and really hated it. Uh, it was, <laughs> I was working for a, a think tank and just, you know, it was just, it was just death each day uh, by a tiny thousand small cuts. <laughs> and I mean, I love DC. Don't get me wrong. Uh, love the people DC's there. Great. A lot of friends, but the, the work professional environment, uh, especially at that time, which is uh, early to early mid two thousands, well, mid two thousands was, uh, was just really mm. just, uh, <laughs> it was awful. So, uh, yeah, I, uh, I came back to Texas where I'm from. Uh, my, I have a half brother, my family here in Austin, um, originally from the Metroplex, Dallas, Fort Worth area. And, uh, and had a ton of student loans, went to private school, went into the tech world, uh, you know, got, tried to pay my loans off <laughs> and, uh, and, and, and try to, you know, do what I could on the side, you know, uh, in terms of just, whatever was going on in the community, uh, being involved, had a radio show actually for a while. So this is taking me back. Uh, <laughs> nice, nice, yeah. Um, which is, yeah, really fun. And, but always really wanted to get back into, into work that I found valuable and, and was really animated by the Black Lives Matter movement, uh, and everything that went on, particularly in Ferguson, uh, and, and after. Uh, and so, you know, once I paid my loans off, I was like, I'm gonna, you know, do whatever I can to jump into it, quit my job, uh, started doing this pro bono work for whatever nonprofit would let me and, you know, after a while, it turned into an uh, organizer gig at a, a place called Grassroots Leadership. Um, and they focus on uh, the intersection of criminal justice and immigration issues. And it was while I was there that we were approached by a group of people experiencing homelessness who were a part of a theater troupe. Uh, and they were about to put on a play called No Sit, No Lie about a local ordinance that criminalized them for, as you might guess, sitting and lying down and said, mm-hmm. can you help us beat this law? Can you help us repeal it? And so we launched a campaign then that's <laughs> taken me on a, on a three-year odyssey of, of mm-hmm. getting into housing and all these other, you know, kind of tangential issues that come along with it. Uh, but it's, it's been some of the most, you know, tough but fulfilling and incredible work. Uh, and I think really gets to the core of so many of the problems in our country and inequalities and the outcomes from our unjust status quo. And so it's been a, it's been, you know, a labor of love for sure. And were those ordinances, that's, that's a, it sounds like an amazing journey. And those ordinances that got you started with criminalization of homelessness, uh, were those the, the three from 1996, uh, that, that we, that we read about? Yeah, that's right. So, um, they, they, the, the camping one, the, the no camping ordinance came on in, in 96 and then the sit lie and the, and the um, panhandling ordinances came, came soon after. Um, but yeah, you know, um, you know, basically they, they criminalize unavoidable behaviors associated with homelessness. So in a, in essence, if you are, find yourself unhoused and, and it's not just in Austin, it's really all over the country, especially in big cities. Um, being homeless is often just against the law. <laughs> um, at any time you could be approached by a police and told that, you know, what you're doing, uh, is, is illegal. Uh, and, and when asked where you might go, uh, where you can do the thing that you need to do, sit, lie, sleep, uh, they'll tell you nowhere. Uh, there's literally nowhere you can go. Um, but just please hide, you know, so we don't see you or here's a ticket. Here's a warrant. Here, here's a trip to jail. 
Yes. So I I feel like that's probably pretty familiar to a lot of listeners. You know, your classic type of, well, we have lots of people who can't afford rent or, you know, they're just uh, they're on a, they had a str- string of bad luck, um, you know, or they have mental illness or other problems. Um, I'm reminded of a lady I used to see in D.C. who had clearly she was looked like she was in her like late 40s and had all this nice gear Um you know, but was just sleeping on the street because it just seemed like she had nowhere to go. Um, yeah. And the response from the authorities is, OK, let's treat the symptom. Let's get it out of sight. Let's let's make these people stop pissing off the bourgeois, the 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 fussy homeowners and so on and make them go away somehow by punishing them. Even if it's literally impossible, they have nowhere to go. But um as these these articles that that uh, you've sent along uh, detail, Austin took a little bit of a different approach. The um, so can you tell us the story? You know what uh, what happened with your campaign um, with the city council, and um, you know what what happened after you know some of those laws were changed. Yeah, I mean, so you know that <laughs> that. Fateful November day in 2017 when uh, folks from Gathering Ground Theater, again, comprised of people either currently or formerly experiencing homelessness, approached us and said, hey, we're, we're putting on this play. Don't sit in a lie. It's really going to highlight the, the oppression that we live under day to day. And we would love your help, you know, as, as organizers, as people that are, have done you know, things successfully in terms of changing policies at City Hall to, to help us make this into a reality. And so... You know, uh, we said, OK, let's do it. And but while we're at it, there's two other laws, uh, the, the panhandling law and the, and the no camping law that, you know, similarly criminalize homelessness. And so we, we launched a campaign and, um, you know, did, did all of the familiar tactics and maybe a few unfamiliar ones. And, and then, yeah, I mean, I think uh, really, uh, you know, hope against hope and, and against all odds in, in June of 2019. Uh, the city council voted not to repeal the three ordinances, which have been our goal, but to severely curtail them. And, and it has gone from they were giving out, you know, uh, five, six thousand tickets a year underneath these ordinances to, to zero. Um, and um, but it's also, of course, changed the complexion of the city. Right. Because now it became legal to sit, to lie, to camp. Um, and so homelessness uh, became much more visible um, in our town. And so it's it's really invited this. Um, this backlash amongst as, as some of the folks and groups you, you described <laughs> um, who um, were perfectly comfortable to hide the problem away uh, using law enforcement rather than actually try to help solve it. And so, you know, we've been since then in just a battle to get people to see that there's real solutions to this. And if we actually put our resources towards those rather than into police and courts and jails, um, then we can do it. Um, and so, but, but here we are. We sit now kind of at the precipice of, of, of really the culmination of it, right? Because they finally got on the ballot an effort to, to roll it back, <clears throat> uh, our changes, to reinstate the old ordinances, to reinstate criminalization. And so the city of Austin will choose now in, a, in an election uh, on May 1st whether or not uh, we, we kind of go back and double down on policing as our solution to this, <laughs> which, of course, we know it can be. Or if if we uh, you know respect the humanity and dignity of folks uh, and and try to actually help help them instead of instead of hurt them. And that, there's some other um, context here, right? Uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think that housing prices in Austin have gone up a great deal. Is that correct? Yeah, we are. We are in like the middle of. We, we, I think we're, we've been like one of the top cities to move to last, you know, number of years. And yeah, the especially during the pandemic, more and more people were moving here, and uh, and the cost of particularly like uh, homes, you know, have just skyrocketed. And uh, we we are a big big um, draw for a lot of folks from Silicon Valley. And, and other parts of California in particular. Um, and of course, they just, you know, they make a lot more, they have a lot more. Um, and of course, we've fashioned ourselves as kind of a, a, a tech hub of the South. And, and now those folks are coming here with those resources driving up the cost of almost everything. Uh, but housing is, is central to that. 
it, yeah, it's uh, it's astounding some of the stats. Um, how many hours someone would have to work at a minimum wage job um, to to actually afford a, even a one bedroom apartment? Uh, <laughs> you know, it's it's more than hours in existence a week. Um, and and we're in a state that's still seven twenty five. You know, uh, we don't have any uh, any increase over the over the federal minimum wage. Um, so it's it's a really difficult place to to try to particularly raise a family, particularly if you um, aren't making aren't at a job that pays uh, a living wage. And, um, and and yeah, we've we've seen the impacts of that in terms of uh, you know people becoming homeless and. And of course, the pandemic has hurt, hurt that everywhere. And we see even nationally, we're at records numbers of, of unhoused folks. So, um, so yeah, it's a, it's a real challenging time to be, to be having this fight as well. Because in addition to homelessness being more visible, there is more homelessness uh, because, because of all these other factors. Uh, and, and it really feeds the people who say there's no solution to it. But of course, they're the very people who fight every solution to it, right? So that's the other big piece of this, right? When when we when when there's even a shelter proposed, which we're not a big fan of because those are temporary and never and often don't actually transition people into full housing, they fight it. You know, uh, in permanent supportive housing, for sure they're going to fight it. Uh, we don't want that near us. We don't, you know. Well, where you know you don't want homelessness, you don't want tents, but you don't want housing either. So what is it that you want? Uh, where what can we do about this issue? And in, and in addition, right, the, the, the state of Texas is also in, involved in this, right? Like you have the governor and the lieutenant governor, and they're making a sort of culture war issue out of this. Like, look at these sicko libs running Austin, and they're, they're bringing all the homeless here somehow. You know, they're, they, right? Like, it, that's part of the equation, too? Oh, yeah, so bad. Well, you know, honestly, we, we thought we walked right into the, to the 2020, you know, election, uh, <laughs> um, so the strategy for the Republicans, because in 2019, that was where Trump was going. If you look at, you know, his 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 Twitter, Fox News appearances, April, May of that year, it was all about homelessness in California. That was going to be the new caravans that, that they tried to do in 2018. Um, and the governor here played that same game. And especially once the uh, ordinances were changed, you know, literally every day on Twitter, he was pointing out some tent. He was he was pointing to some incident um, and and trying to really just fear monger, make people afraid of, of people experiencing homelessness, dehumanize them, uh, put them all in the same boat. Um, and um, and yeah, so he's he's been a constant, you know, uh, threat to, to folks. And, and now there are a couple of bills proceeding through the Texas legislature um, that would not just criminalize uh, uh, camping in Austin, but across the whole state. And, and camping is even too broad of a word. They were criminalized sleeping anywhere outside <laughs> in public uh, if you have any possessions with you. So anything other than the clothes on your back uh, and you're breaking the law, even if you're in your own car. Um, so it's it, there's threats abound right now. Uh, and, you know, in general, it's just it's, it's the same playbook, whether it's immigrants, Muslims, trans kids. Uh, it's it's find a group dehumanize them, make everyone afraid of them, uh, and then uh, try to criminalize them in some way um, and point out the behaviors of a, of a few individuals to try to justify that. Um, it, it's, it's, you know, the same tactic that, that those types of folks use all the time. Does this law have, I, just a quick question here and I'll, and, and I'll shut up for a minute. Does this law have an exception for like camping you know, like it sounds like they've are outlawed RVs and campgrounds at the same time, right? Like you're taking your possessions with you out to the forest. I feel like Texans like to camp. No, so they, they do have an exception in there for uh, for like state campgrounds, but it's it's wild because um, they they say if if you want to allow camping anywhere else, then you have to run it through a state board. Um, so even like if a local government wanted to say, hey, this is an area where Folks in camp while we figure out, you know, homelessness. They couldn't do it. They would have to get the approval of the state board, who, of course, is just going <laughs> to deny everything. Uh, so it's 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 a big ruse just to criminalize and hide homelessness. And again, so, just, so, just, so much for your, your federalism. You know, that's some big state uh, action there, taking away local control. You know, you'd think the reactionaries would be against that. But <laughs> oh my uh, goodness, yeah, no, the local control stuff is it does not apply to Austin. 
We are the punching bag of the state. I wonder what's different about Austin. Hmm, interesting. (laughs) But but it's funny that you say that, though, because this isn't just a right-wing Republican problem, right? There's bipartisan resistance uh, because it turns out liberals like capitalism. And, uh, you know, the the, the very um, capitalist interests that raise the rent and that increase the homeless population, the unhoused population, those are the same business interests that really don't like the look, right, of having um, unhoused people sleeping near their business. And they don't like the, you know, the per- perception and per- perhaps the reality of tourism being affected and so forth. Um, to which a leftist might say, okay, well, let's pay for social housing, then they'll be out of the way. They, they won't be, you know, getting in front of your store. Uh, are you down for that? <laughs> How's that? How is that kind of battle going with, with the pro-capitalist liberal contingency? No, it's it's uh, it's a real thing, right? So you know, there's um, there's a there's a group, the Downtown Austin Alliance here, which represents basically the downtown businesses in our in our city, and of course they were opposed, you know, from the jump to to changing the ordinances in the first place, um, and now have have supported the efforts at the state level uh, to 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 ban camping statewide, um, and they they signed on to a challenge to the Boise v. Martin decision, which said that. You know, basically, if you disallow sleeping outside and you haven't provided enough shelter, then you're in violation of the Eighth Amendment's prohibitions on cruel and unusual punishment. Um, so, you know, yeah, for sure. I think, you know, decriminalizing homelessness really struck at the grand bargain of a lot of cities, which is, uh, you know, we want that that de- the developer downtown business dollars uh, <laughs> and the police are really at your disposal. What What, what you need them to do? Mm-hmm. Uh, that's what they're there for, and and we right. take all the tax money that <laughs> that you'll you'll help us pr- pr- uh, uh, provide, and we'll we'll shovel almost all of that into the police department, so right. that they can then right. uh, keep your space, your areas clean, uh, quote unquote clean, uh, and right. friendly for for more business. So yeah, yeah, um, yeah. It's it's definitely been a it's been a a big fight. Um, we have um, you know I think made some strides as far as like getting them to actually. Put some money on the table now. Uh, realize, like, hey, this problem is here, and and it's basically the root. The root is inequality in in our country, and y'all are the ones with the money. So, if we're gonna start to solve this, it, it starts with you. Um, uh, that said, you know, obviously politically, they've been an opponent. You know, I think another big piece too is, like, to to like slightly sympathize with folks who you know the the, the kind of NIMBY contingent. Everything now, you know, because of the, the the total decline in pensions and people not knowing whatever time is going to come, every 20 years there's a crash. Everything is in your house. If you own a home, you, you think everything is in your house. So people are very inclined to protect it at all costs, anything that they think is going to hurt the value of their house. Um, and, and for me, it's like, look, we're actually in solidarity here <laughs> because if you're everything is wrapped up in this one thing, uh, then you're just as liable to end up on the streets as, as, as anyone else, right? So we don't be thinking about what's going to harm me right now. Think about if I was in that situation, what would I want? <laughs> How would I want to be treated? Um, and, and that's really where we, you know, try to take the conversation. But it is, uh, it is very much that, you know, we, we've got a broken system that we're, so many folks are wrapped into. It's hard to get people to think outside of it sometimes and, and really put themselves in other people's shoes. Yeah, I mean, it's it strikes me that you know the 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 symptom problem is sort of broadly become the axis of of discussion around any kind of homelessness. You know, it's like, what do we do with the the people who are experiencing homelessness? Like, how do we get rid of them? You know, how do we how do we uh, you know make them go away? Um, and less discussion about the sort of broader context, because, uh, you know, what the stuff that you've been working on, correct me if I'm wrong, th- there's a lot of stuff that is not about people being on the street per se, right? Like you are working to get people into like permanent housing and try to, you know, increase the supply of affordable housing such that like, you know, people who, you know, may may even have a job as a lot of homeless folks do, or they're living out of their car or something. They just can't afford rent anywhere. Uh, you know, we'll have a place to stay. So can you tell us, you know, about the 
the the like non-obvious parts of the agenda here. You mean as far as housing goes? Yeah, I mean housing and just like like services more generally. I mean, yep. you know, uh, uh, you know, folks who may be experiencing mental health problems, for instance, or have like untreated medical issues. Aside from that, you know, um, that seems to be part of the overall strategy, right? For sure. Yeah. I mean, I, I think you know, it, it's really just understanding that uh, people experience homelessness are, are really no different than anybody. Uh, and there's a lot of people that, you know, share so many, so much in common with people experiencing homelessness. The, the kind of main yes. difference is just that, that these folks have, have, have lost or just don't have the support network to, <laughs> to, to, to continue to ensure that they have housing. Uh, whereas, you know, most people that have mental health issues, the vast majority, uh, to the point that they, you know, uh, uh, aren't able to support themselves, have a support network that keeps them housed. Uh, most people with a substance use issue uh, are in a house. Uh, it's just the folks yep. that that have substance use issues that uh, lost their support network in some form or fashion that that we see uh, outside. Um, and so it. And the other thing is that, you know, these conditions, while while definitely slightly more prevalent amongst people experiencing homelessness, are not that much more prevalent than, than among the population at large. Um, you know, it's something slightly over a third of people experiencing homelessness with a mental health disorder. Well, it's 25 percent of Americans. Uh, so, <laughs> uh, so yeah. you know, it, this isn't a situation where it's just people in, in the, you know, experiencing these sort of extremes. The other thing that people don't realize is how much the being homeless exacerbates these issues, right? Like if you have a, a minor mental health yep. condition and you become homeless and you're on the streets for six months, well, guess what? It's probably not going to be minor anymore. Um, and if, if you're on the streets and, and it's, it's stretched on to, to a year or more, um, the likelihood that you're going to start wanting to escape from that in every way possible, <laughs> including uh, the use of substances, is extremely high, uh, and, and I don't think anybody is exempt from that, from those pressures. So, um, yeah, but but obviously, like there there's a certain segment of folks, particularly again those that have been chronically homeless for a long period of time, who who need support, and and they ultimately can't can't really stay housed without support. And and for many of us, we have relatives like that, we have friends like that, or we're personally like that. Um, and and so, if you don't have that support network. Then, then we need those services. And so, you know, the, the, there's permanent supportive housing that's typically provided to, to, for folks like that, uh, where, where, where possible. And, you know, we've, uh, we've been able to, uh, have a huge uptick in units over the last two years. Again, the increase in visibility has really driven a lot more uh, dollars to the issue, a lot more volunteers, a lot more city money. Um, and such that we've seen, you know, really a lot of that come in. And we were actually able to divert some of the money from last year's police budget uh, into um, into two hotels uh, and the ongoing support uh, services for folks uh, at those hotels. 150 units uh, just this spring. Incredible. Uh, there's another. Yeah, there's another 170 units uh, coming on online in the fall. So wow. Um, so yeah, you know, it's it is about uh, you know seeing. Hey, look, <laughs> we're 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 using law enforcement as the the tip of the spear to address homelessness, that's not working and never will. <laughs> uh, so what do we do? Well, we, we, we can put it into housing. We can put it into services that actually will uh, solve the problem. Uh, but where's the money going to come from? Well, um, if, if we're not increasing the tax base, which I think obviously we, we should be <laughs> making uh, wealthy folks pay more, uh, uh, this is this is another way we can do it. We can take the money from the people that we're trying to have solve this problem now uh, unsuccessfully and put it towards the things that will actually solve it. Um, so so, I, you know, that hopefully that that sort of those sort of moves will continue and we'll, we'll continue to have progress there. Yeah, th- this this strikes me as a, a perfect example of. Um, what people are talking about, you know, when they say kind of defund the police, you know, I think that gets distracted into a question about whether we should abolish police departments altogether. You know, that's something that is, is probably like, that would be a very heavy political lift. Um, you know, there's not a lot of support for that particular position at the moment, but what you're talking about is, 
uh, a, a, a much more obvious, concrete, understandable uh, way of saying, look, you know, we have tasked the police with doing all this shit that is just like warehousing or, or sweeping aside social dysfunction. And the overall cost to the government, correct me if I'm wrong, is not uh, cheap. You know, you're talking about police officers, you know, scamming overtime from the state. I don't know if they do that in Austin, but it's a chronic problem. You know, putting people in jail for, you know, that is a very expensive thing to do as well. And if you just say, hey, look, you are addressing, again, the symptom rather than the cause. You know, you, you are shoving stuff under the rug rather than actually cleaning it up. And so to say, look, here's our money, you know, we can increase taxes or what, you know, like if we're going to do Medicare for all, okay, that's going to take some taxes. But we're talking about homelessness. It's not a huge amount of money involved to like, you know, uh, uh, provide for, uh, you know, um, permanent supported housing, the type of things that you're talking about, you know, and the police departments are pretty large in, in, in most cities and there is a lot of money there. And so you can say, okay, we're diverting away from punishing people who, you know, for, for existing basically and moving the budget towards, uh, trying to actually deal with the problem at the root. Right. And so it's, it strikes me that this seems to be like a, a really solid example that it's not as wildly impracticable as people say to, to be like the police as they exist now should not exist. Yeah. They they are uh, uh, it, it, you are using the wrong tool to address this problem. You know, like if they are if, a bunch you know, of tools, I'll give you that. <laughs> bracketing the question of like, you know, murder and so on. It's like all these other basically social services that the police have been, you know, sort of uh, dragooned into doing. That's not appropriate for them. We need alternative institutions. And um, so you think that's like a, I mean, do you think that model is, is kind of paying off in Austin? Leading question. (laughs) (laughs) Well, definitely. I think, you know, we're, it's the it's just the beginning of, of you know obviously the investment in the types of institutions that we need to to actually meet yeah. the, meet the need that we have but yeah it's it's um, you know the people that are experiencing homelessness uh, under criminalization you know faced a, a, an enormous amount of oppression nightly being run off from where they were not getting any sleep not feeling safe really anywhere uh, and then being saddled with warrants and jail, which only hurt their ability to get housing and employment. Um, now they live in tents, which aren't great. Uh, it's still, um, you know, a, a really unfortunate circumstance, but they have a lot more stability uh, and, uh, you know, ultimately like ability to go to work regularly, uh, keep the possessions that they, the few possessions that they have <laughs> and, the, and the like essential documents that they have. To actually meet regularly with treatment providers, service providers, uh, and to be easily found uh, night to night because they live in a consistent place. And those are all things that are going to help the transition into actually fixing the problem of ending homelessness, actually housing folks so much easier. Uh, Whereas what we were doing before was paying a lot of police to to literally just (laughs) track down people in, you know, on the underpasses and, and, and run them back into like creek beds and, and into the woods, uh, so that they couldn't be seen or worst case, you know, arrest them and take them to jail. Um, and so it was a, it's a huge waste in addition to being harmful. And, and yeah, now that we're putting more money into housing, we're, you know, a lot of people are being helped and a lot more, uh, can be helped again if, if we continue on this track. And the first step is voting no on Proposition B uh, in Austin. Uh, we just we have to win this vote on May 1st. Uh, early voting starts on Monday. And so we're just really trying to get as many people to vote no on that as possible to 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 make sure that we continue on, on the right path. And I'll just say in last thing, General, you know, I think, um, you know, I think there's a, a lot of misconceptions about defund and abolition. But but ultimately, you know, I think it's about building life affirming institutions. I mean, Ruth Wilson Gilmore says. So we just have to start with that process. Let's build yep. the institutions that are going to help people, and 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 then let's see what, how far we can take it. Right? Like what what do That's we right. need, 
with 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 you know on the public safety front. Uh, once you know we have everybody housed, we have everybody with a living wage, we have people with access to health care. Like, what what is the situation then? Uh, and I, I think we, we would find that the, the need for police uh, diminishes uh, incredibly in that in that scenario. Absolutely. And my inclination is to want to argue with Ryan, whom I love, but, but who I bicker with on, on abolition. Um, but, but I think he, he, he agrees with what you said and what, what I, I think in terms of, uh, where we're at politically now. Uh, it means the same thing to push for abolition, to push for defund, as long as we are depleting the police of their resources and of the current function they have and, and, and taking away their money and, and, you know, uh, just by necessity, if you do that, the budget will have money for these other things, which will make sense to address these social needs in those ways. Like, you don't even have to spell it out. That's just what happens when you take away money from the police budget. There's Because there's otherwise, there's austerity that's imposed in order to preserve the bloated police budget. But in any case, like I think theoretically, it's important to talk about in Austin and other places, this connection between policing and, of course, immigration, ICE, uh, all kinds of... Um, Harming of people who are otherized and dehumanized and uh, put in cages or deported, like this is a the way that capitalism disappears people instead of addressing social problems. It doesn't get rid of social problems, it gets rid of people. And it does it at the behest of those vested interests who profit from that setup and from the kind of uh, papering over, you know, the, the, the poor white people who ignore their, their working class because. Uh, conditions and forget about the actual obstacle, which is their, their overlords and instead focus on, uh, you know, Muslims and Mexicans and, um, you know, the homeless. So that's, I'm ranting a little bit, but, but I, I wonder if you have experienced this kind of, uh, in your, in your messaging and your activism, or even in, in the work that you do to, to address these social needs, this kind of interconnection between how capitalism, uh, you know, makes that grand bargain you're talking about and, and how that relates to, to not just homelessness, but to, to policing and also to things like immigration issues as well. Yeah, no. Um, and like I said, I, you know, I really um, cut my teeth as, uh, as an organizer at grassroots leadership, uh, which I just you know, always uh, <laughs> give so much credit to. Uh, and they're just a phenomenal organization that, again, works at the intersection of uh, of policing and, and immigration, and and it's yeah. So it's um, you know ultimately you know these systems are are, are designed to set up, reinforce, um, uh, and maintain um, you know uh, social and class hierarchies, um, and in particular um, to to maintain an underclass of people. Um, not different from the institution of slavery, right? So uh, if we're talking about slavery, ultimately what it does is it maintains an underclass of people who uh, obviously are not uh, compensated for their labor and for whom they have no uh, participation in their political system. In their, they have no autonomy. They have no uh, opportunity to participate in the politically in the institutions that run their lives. And if we look at what the immigration system and what the prison system do today, it's it's largely the same. Uh, the people that um, are, you know, go into these systems um, uh, are obviously exploited for their labor while they're there. Uh, in Texas, there is literally no uh, wage that they pay to people in the prison system, in the state prison system. Uh, it is literally there's there's prisons that are still on the same plantations that were run, back running back then. Guys on horses, uh, you know. I mean, it's it is it is truly insane. Uh, and then, but then, um, and and it's similar in detention centers. They have people working for free there as well. And then, once you come out uh, of the prison system, you're subjected to what can be often lifelong discrimination in in your employment, uh, which keeps you uh, at a depressed wage uh, in perpetuity. Um, and obviously, uh, so much of the immigration system is about denying. Uh, the the recognition of citizenship that would grant equal wages or, or any sort of good wage to an entire class of people. The whole system is designed for that explicit purpose, as well as to deny them political participation, right? If we keep them in this status, they'll never be able to vote. They'll never be able to participate in, in the government and in in its institutions that run their lives. And very similar with the prison system, right? Almost no one can vote while they're there. And then again, many states still uh, continue to uh, disable people from voting long after 
uh, they're gone. Uh, and, and, you know, in Texas, you can vote again uh, after you get off papers, uh, which means after you're off parole, uh, which means potentially years after you're released from prison. And they're often trying to get you to <laughs> slip and put you back in prison or extend your parole. And so, you know, we have a situation now where something like over 6% of uh, the population uh, is disenfranchised uh, for a felony in this country. Um, and one in three individuals have had some interaction with the criminal legal system, which is impacting their ability in the workplace and housing. Um, so, uh, you know, again, these systems and, of course, the police is the kind of the tip of the spear, the, 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 the group that drives people into these systems uh, are, are ultimately their primary role is to maintain these underclasses. Uh, and again, obviously, race plays a big role in, in who ends up in these underclasses. Um, and uh, so, yeah, that's very much part of the analysis uh, that, <laughs> that we use when we talk about these. Um, and, and we see it in the homeless population as well. Right. So Austin is uh, we're about seven, eight uh, percent black city uh, and over a third of people experiencing homelessness are black in our city. Right. Um, so it's um, it's it's very much, you know, all, all tied together. And 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 yeah. And, and obviously, I think you're, you're very much right that um, this is a necessity within the capitalist system to to find the groups and to and to force and keep them in an underclass uh, because we need cheap labor. Uh, and and it also <laughs> helps if those folks can't vote. So they don't vote to end the situation that, <laughs> that keeps them there. Um I wanted to ask, um, well, briefly, just change, changing this the subject, we could we could return to that um, about the 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 topic of social housing. Um, the, the because this is something I wrote a paper with um, with another uh, uh, with a woman about this at the People's Policy Project, and um, you know the the idea being that you know that when you have a housing shortage. And there's like nothing market rate that is available for like, you know, working class people. Uh, the government should just come in and build, um, you know, housing to, to, you know, to kind of flood the market. Um, and, you know, if you have a high market rate, you can use the, the uh, rents that you would obtain at the market rate to cross subsidize, you know. So you have like a big building. Um, owned by, say, the city of Austin, and you have, you know, let's just say half of it is market rate that produces a huge surplus over and above the cost of maintaining the building. And you can use that to charge, you know, whatever other rents you want, um, you know, in the in the rest of the units, uh, you know, for example, uh, you know, uh, housing for homeless folks. Um, and that's something that you could potentially do without doing any budgetary costs to this, to the city government at all. You know, you could just say, you know, we're going to float a bond against the future revenues of this thing. Um, and you know, we'll just, you know, we'll, you could hire a contractor to build it. You know, there are lots of, I'm sure there's lots of, uh, construction companies in Austin and then it'll be owned by the government. And then you, you know, you, you basically, I mean, you have this flood of people from Silicon Valley making, you know, shitloads of money. And, um, this is one way of just saying, give me some of that, you know, this is like, I want it and I'm going to take it through the, through the housing market. And I'm going to, we're going to use it, you know, for, for social purposes to expand the supply of housing for, you know, for, for poor people, for homeless people, for whoever you want, you know, you could construct the uh, rent diagram, however, however you might, uh, you know, choose to do it. Th this is something, you know, I've talked to a number of uh, people in city governments about doing this. And it seems very baffling to them at first glance, you know, the idea that the government could just build and operate an, a, an apartment building, you know, but it's not completely out of the question. And, and if you're not doing it on a sort of public housing model where everybody is, is, uh, you know, requires a subsidy. Well, you know, it's like now we have money to play with and it doesn't require, you know, rents. Uh, Jeffrey Q programmer from uh, San Jose is paying for all that. Um, so I wonder, you know, if there's been much discussion of that type of model in terms of, you know, I mean, clearly it seems to me that Austin is short of housing, um, you know, across the board, not just for homeless people, but for working class and even middle class people, you know, who can't you know, afford a down payment or whatever or rents. Um, and 
if there, you know, folks have been sort of thinking about that in government or out of government? You know, um, I was, I'll be perfectly honest to say that housing is not my, you know, specialty subject. I am, you know, I feel like in the last couple of years, I've gained a lot more familiarity with stuff like that. And I know Vienna probably has the most successful like social housing model. I've read a good deal about that. Um, but honestly, I, I do think that it's it's really just now starting to be something that, that people are talking about in a real way. Um, there's been some like organizing the community talking about public housing for a long time. Um, but I think the concept of social housing in that model where it's it's not necessarily just for uh, just for poor people, like the kind of traditional model for public housing, uh, but but it's something that can be uh, it is actually very intentionally for pe- people of all different incomes. Um, I do think is something that is is really only starting to 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 be discussed as a real approach. But I think there's clearly a lot of benefits, right? And um, and and the example of Vienna, I mean, it, it, just the the success that they've had with that through decades now. Uh, since implementing it, it seems really clear to me. Um, and, you know, and I think what I always talk about it too is just that obviously, like, the government needs to get back into the housing business. And that's really the biggest issue that we've had. <laughs> you know, there was a surplus yeah. of low income housing before Reagan. Uh, you know, there, you know, there was a lot of problems with how, you know, uh, HUD and some of those, you know, housing projects and other things work. But um, we went from a surplus to a deficit. Because they defunded HUD, uh, and and now we're in a situation where we have, you know, just on just the the, the undercount uh, based on the, the annual point in time counts around the country, you know, over half a million people uh, unsheltered homelessness, uh, and and it's you know it's not something that we should <laughs> have grown accustomed to, and now that now that we we're in this situation, we we have to we have to make this investment and, and make it make it quick. Uh, because it's, you know, it. I think the lo- the lasting effects on people's lives and livelihoods and ability to to, uh, you know, participate meaningfully um, in 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 the workplace and their democracy is harmed by the long term uh, homelessness that we're allowing to to, to occur. So um, I'm I'm all in favor of <laughs> getting the government back in the housing business. Uh, I do think the feds have a big role to play. Uh, but but obviously, like yeah. the locals are, um, especially a rich city like Austin, very capable of doing this. Yeah, and that well, something you said there is some. I want to drill down on that a little bit. You you talked about you know of how you know the homelessness is something that can affect a you know a broad swath of the of the people. But correct me if I'm wrong. You know the the vast majority of people I, I, from what I've read. Uh, who are experiencing homelessness are not people who you would think, you know, in your sort of media stereotype are, are, are like the sort of chronically homeless people, your panhandlers, your people who are like obviously suffering mental problems. It's a transitory phenomenon, right? For the most part. And that means it's, it's a, you know, it's something that, that can and does happen to basically anybody. I mean, unless you're super rich or whatever, and you have like lots of support networks, as you can, as you were saying, it's just people who, like the sort of Swiss cheese holes lined up and they had a f- several turns of bad luck and they, and they lost it, you know, um, all their security and ended up on the street because there was nowhere else to go. It wasn't like, you know, the, the, the people who are, uh, suffering, you know, just like t- total, uh, social, you know, collapse or whatever. It's, it's ordinary folks, right? For the most part. No, for sure. The the number one drivers of homelessness are job loss, healthcare issues, domestic violence. Like these are the things that drive people into into these situations. Um, and yeah, like, and I think it's you know people, yeah, people don't really get that that a lot of people are in and out and are just generally housing insecure. Uh, and if you look at like the point in time counts, right? So HUD has um, you know most of the cities uh, run a point in time count each year. It's a one night count where folks go out in Austin. We do it in January. <laughs> so it's, you know, it's, it's a, it's a definite undercount, right? Of the number of people ultimately who are experiencing homelessness, both on that night, because it's a January night where people are cold and trying to huddle up somewhere uh, warm. But then too, um, what we know is that, you know, so, and so we're at, you know, 25, 2,600 people annually that are experiencing homelessness. 
on, according to this point in time count. But if we look at the number of people who interact with the, the homeless service providers uh, in any way over the course of the year, it's seven, eight, nine thousand people, right? So these aren't people who on any given night are experiencing homelessness, but they are people who, um, you know, have suffered a, a week or two of it. Uh, they got evicted, lost their job, you know, got divorced, and now <laughs> they're, they're without and they're waiting on, you know, that Western Union, they're waiting on some some intervention from a family, from a friend, or from from the city uh, to help them get back on their feet uh, until they, that, that job comes through and they can start getting payment again. And, and people also really, I think, you know, assume that possessions equal that someone should be able to do something. When in fact, people are given a lot of things. Honestly, people just discard a lot of trash, <laughs> the stuff they don't want anymore to people experiencing homelessness. But that doesn't equal uh, someone having enough income to prove to a landlord that they can make a monthly rent payment. Right? <laughs> like you, The barrier is to actually getting housing. 40% of people experiencing homelessness in Austin actually have a job. Um, and, you know, they just wow. cannot afford Damn. a place to live. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's, it's, uh, it's really, you know, it's, you know, people are like, well, if you have a full-time job, you shouldn't be poor. I mean, with our with our incredibly high minimum wage, I don't see how that's possible, Chris. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> so, yeah. Well, now, you, you know, in terms of, I mean, it's so perverse. So much of uh, the ills of capitalism uh, have to do with this kind of like, like from Stranger Things, this upside down world. Because if, look, all people are equally human, except like the ultra rich, if anyone is a little bit less than human, the ultra rich are like... They're the, the the weird ones who are distinct from everyone else, and they're the ones who actually are stable insofar as like a certain amount of wealth and power. You do get to keep that wealth and power, and it keeps growing even if you try to give it away, right? And mm-hmm. so like everyone else is moving around and, and falling through the cracks and rising back up, and and the transitory nature of of you know who at a given time is unhoused and who at a given time is is unemployed, right? Like that's the normal pe- normal people. Right, uh, in our system, which is so precarious, which doesn't have support, uh, built into it. We're the ones that at any given time could be poor, could be unhoused, could be, uh, in any of these positions that get criminalized and, and, and demonized, right? Uh, but in actuality, you know, those are all the normal human people doing their best given their circumstances that, that require solidarity and require help. Uh, when those at the top are actually the ones that are stable and could be thought of and, and kind of like this stagnant class. Um, I don't know. That's just a thought that occurred to me. Yeah. I, um, I had a, uh, before, uh, before I asked my last question, I, I had one more, you know, a, a sort of political question for you, Chris. Um, you know, if, if you remember, uh, in 20, uh, after 2020, you know, Biden beats Trump, but the Democrats kind of eat shit at the state level. You know, they barely hold on to the, um, the house. Um, they, they, they whiff all of these Senate races. They do win in Georgia. That's pretty impressive. I, I will, I will grant mainly Raphael Warnock for that, who seems to be a genuine talent. Uh, kind of dragging John Ossoff over the line. Um, and, uh, but then afterwards, you know, there was this big movement to blame defund the police, that, that, that it was these lefty activists who were all mad over all of these, you know, uh, police murders and so on. And if they had just shut up about it and, and then, then the, then the right wouldn't have gone, uh, you know, mad over, you know, whatever. But, um, you know, so far at the national level, we haven't seen any kind of serious police reform. Um, you know, it, it, there, there's been a few things under discussion, you know, really nothing's passed. Um, but at the local level, there's, there's a real sea change, I think, that has happened in many cities. Um, in, 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 in Minneapolis, uh, in, um, St. Louis to a lesser extent, uh, in uh, San Francisco, in Philly, um, you know, we, we have a reformist, uh, district attorney who is up for reelection. Actually, that, that, that one is coming up. Philly voters vote for, uh, Larry Krasner, not the fascist policeman. Um, the, 
So I'm curious as to your perspective on the local impact of the Black Lives Matter movement and how that may have, you know, fueled your, you know, your, your, your activism. Do you, do you think that, you know, what we've been talking about with homelessness and shifting the priorities of uh, government funding in the city of Austin would have been possible without uh, that movement saying that the police are, are basically eating up our, our whole money and not really doing what we, you know, what we uh, supposedly want them to do. No, no, it was totally the, <laughs> that movement that did it. <laughs> um, yeah, um, you know, we had, you know, the council members I spoke with, you know, during last summer um, and, and folks who, you know, had been at City Hall for a long time said that was the most engagement they ever got about any issue ever. Um, and, you know, we love our dogs here. Let me tell you. Uh, <laughs> you, you throw, who doesn't? You, you I've throw, got a dog. Yeah, you throw some animal stuff on the agenda and, and people will call. Uh, so, um, so yeah, it, that the, the, the wait wait hang on the the uh what was that something to do with uh like ho- homeless folks being able to keep their pets was is that what that is no i'm saying i'm saying the the, the movement to to defund police uh last summer uh was literally the thing that they got more engagement about than they've ever gotten about anything uh, oh okay. And, yeah. Oh, I see what you're saying. Yeah, and 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 and, and we you know love our our parks, our springs, our dogs here. Uh, normally, these would be the issues that really compel Austinites to <laughs> to uh, to to call and email their their city leaders. So, um, and yeah, and then obviously like one of the things that, and I'll say a couple of things. One is you know there's been some groups here locally, Community Color United in particular, that have been pushing on the police budget for years. So we had this. And many of us have organized with them, through them, you know, around them. Uh, and, and so we had this internal, uh, you know, history and knowledge of, of the city budget process and all of that from, from doing that work over years. Just that, you know, so many organizers and organ, uh, organizations in our city were able to translate so much of the anger in the streets to a call that, that propelled, uh, you know, the city to actually decrease the police budget last year. Um, and and obviously when when we were talking about well where should the money go <laughs> you know like homelessness really bubbled up as something that everybody felt was such a priority to, to address um, as one of those things so um, it was it was very much due to that movement um, and 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 yeah I think even in cities where the police budget wasn't lowered and obviously there are a number of other cities where it was what we see is more effort to create alternatives. Uh, alternative mental health re- first responders, uh, alternative uh, you know substance use programs, um, uh, alternatives to, to traffic enforcement, uh, which obviously we're, I think we're going to see an increased push for after the tragic killing of Dante Wright. Um, you know, uh, ways that we can uh, you know meet the needs of people um, and, and promote health and safety, but without <laughs> deploying someone whose primary training is in is in violence and whose primary tools are weapons. Uh, and instead, people whose primary tools are, you know, the, the training that they have in, in helping people meet, meet their needs uh, and, and get help. Uh, and because so much of what, you know, ultimately produces safety is, is, is meeting the needs of people. Uh, and they are and very, uh, very infrequently is that, is that violence. Um, so, you know, I think it's it's been a really transformative movement, and I, and I foresee it continuing. There will be setbacks like there always are, but I, I don't think the trend of trying to find new ways to solve problems that don't involve police is going to stop. I think that's going to continue and it's going to grow. And to the national picture, you know what, I'll, I'll just say that, you know, I, I think that's a lot of scapegoating, honestly. Almost none of the people that, you know, were claimed to have been hurt uh, by, by defund uh, we're, we're saying defund, you know, and if, yep. and if you as a politician are able to be painted with something that you don't even claim, then I blame you. That's your fault. <laughs> That's right. Uh, <laughs> exactly right. Yeah. Um, 
you know, if, if you're saying it and, and you lose, then then the voters have spoken. I get that. But if you're not even saying it, uh, then uh, then I don't understand how you can you can blame you know, a slogan that you don't even subscribe to. Well, I, I have a lot of hope for, for local efforts, like the, the, the struggle you're involved with and the organizations, um, in Austin are involved with because it's easy to buy into the, and I know there's media, uh, sensationalization and, and kind of bullshit going on, uh, regarding what's going on in Austin and spinning things and buying into Ted Cruz and the governor's, uh, you know, rhetoric and all that. But, uh, if you're actually living in Austin and you see that defunding, the budget and actually giving housing for the homeless is, is working and addressing the social needs. You're going to not likely, um, buy into that scapegoating and bullshit that the media is offering as easily. Whereas on the national level, if it's not really affecting you, if you're not living, uh, near the issues, you, you, maybe you can just fantasize and imagine, um, you know, what's going on in the rest of the country. So, but I think that just makes it all the more important that, that local efforts like yours, uh, really take, take the lead. Yeah. And so, um, my last question here as we're wrapping up, um, tell us about the, the election. We've got, uh, May 1st, right? If I'm not mistaken. Yes, that's, that's right. Yeah. So Austin listeners, uh, get, right. yeah, all, all get organized. Five get out. Of you. <laughs> Who, I don't know how many people. Tell your friends, listen. everyone listening that knows anyone in Austin. See, Ryan, this is what you do. In, if you're living in Austin, if you know somebody in Austin, uh, if you have a powerful social media account, let everybody know that May 1st is the date. And, and Chris, what, what's a good message to, to help people uh, understand what, what to do and, and how to do it? Sure. Well, um, early voting starts Monday um, and the actual election day is on Saturday, May 1st. So please just go vote <laughs> if you're in Austin. And, and if you know somebody in Austin, tell them to go vote. Uh, and if you know somebody in Brooklyn or San Francisco, they probably know someone in Austin or they might live in Austin now. Uh, so tell them to vote for <laughs> against Trump. Damn right. Damn right. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and honestly, the same applies to Dallas and Houston. Uh, uh, everybody's coming here. So, um, yeah. And then also you can go to uh, knowonpropb2021.org. That's N-O-O-N-P-R-O-P-B. 2021.org, no on prop B, 2021.org. And you can see there how to donate, uh, to our field operations. We're doing literally like two, three, four times a day, block walks, phone banks, text banks, um, you know, putting up signs wherever we can put them. Uh, so you can find out, you can kind of pledge to vote no and get, get engaged, uh, for those volunteer opportunities as well. Um, and yes, please, please support, uh, whether you're in or outside of Austin, we, we really could use the help. Yeah. Well, we'll throw a link to all that stuff in the description. Oh, I didn't have to spell what? it all out. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's good. Well, it's good. it may be useful. You know, people don't always click on that. Yeah. Um, but, but what, what's your sense on the ground, you know, of, of, uh, how, you know, how things are playing out? Do you, I mean, do you, do you who stick knows, your finger in the like, air and see how the wind's blowing yeah. By the way. It is bullshit to hold elections on May 1st, you know, in an off election year. I mean, this is just a complete travesty of democracy. Um, but, you know, uh, insofar as you can, like, find your people and turn them out, do you, do you think you're in a good spot? What, what's your sense? I think it's going to be real close. Yeah. Um, uh, so, you know, that is the challenge, right? So May 1st votes, May elections with no candidates on the ballot. Almost nobody shows up. Uh, it's sure. really super, yeah. super low turnout. So, um, and, and often the people that do are the people that are more well off, um, that are more tuned in. So, you know, our challenge, of course, is just getting in front of as many people as we can and the people that we know are with us. So, um, that's, that's, that's really where we're at. We're just trying to knock on as many doors and call as many phones as we can, uh, because we know once folks know about it, they'll show up and we can get this done. Um, yeah. yeah. The flip side of that, though, uh, if you're living in Austin or you know people in Austin, uh, your vote counts a lot. A lot. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, if you're voting for president in Austin, bullshit, bull, doesn't matter, completely pointless. <laughs> but this, you could, you could very possibly be the deciding vote. So we strongly encourage you That's to true. get out there and vote to, uh, you know, 
fix homelessness rather than uh, suppress homelessness. And um, yeah, Chris Harris, we thank you for coming on the show. Um, and we, we wish you the very best of luck in the next two weeks. And, you know, we're, we're all pulling for you. Thank you so much. Really, really appreciate the opportunity. It was great. Been a pleasure. Thanks, Cheers. Chris. Bye-bye, everyone. Hello, everyone. Alexi the Greek here. Hope you enjoyed that episode. Just a friendly reminder that uh, to support the show and also to get access to a number of bonus episodes, you could join us on Patreon, uh, patreon.com slash left anchor. Uh, $5 a month gets you a lot of episodes and really, really helps us out. So um, if that's something you're interested in and, and you want to show your support, we greatly appreciate it. Thanks so much.